Optimism Vaccine. I'm Steve, and joining me this week, it's Jack Eason. Always a pleasure, Steve. Can't wait to, to get into the nitty-gritty on these ones. Get into the underpants of affairs, as it were. <laughs> oh, man. Speaking about getting into the underpants, uh, how do you feel about King Charles having cancer between his dick and his ass? I mean, it's it's deeply sad um, for all of us, I'm sure, and we'll probably handle it in a very tasteful fashion. Yeah, I can only imagine. So what is uh, that, like skin cancer? What? <laughs> no, prostate! Come on! <laughs> oh, that seems like skin? in the ass. That seems <laughs> like in I the mean, ass, not between dick and ass. <laughs> it's, I think it's between, because it's inside of you. Like, it's, it's, about, it's probably about halfway. I mean, obviously, if you want to poke that thing, you're going through the ass, but, you know, it's, it's kind of in between. Okay, fair, fair. Here I thought he was, like, sunning himself too much on the taint and... He no. could be. We don't know what yeah. he gets up to. Um, there was a live video feed of Buckingham Palace or some shit earlier on Twitter. And it was like, you know, it was presented as like live feed of the view of Buckingham Palace after it's been announced that King Charles had a cancer diagnosis. And it's just the building, because what else would it be? Like, the building <laughs> would crumble to represent his ailing health or something. Yeah. It's incredible. I love news. It's really, it's really enriches my life. I think it's pretty cool because, like, you know, he's he's about 3,000 years old and uh, it, it took him forever to finally become king. And now it uh, looks like things might get cut a little bit short. So it really. Yeah, because I mean, when he became king, it really it undercut maybe my favorite TV joke ever. As a kid, I loved it. And honestly, I never grew up beyond not loving it, which is from The Critic. There's an episode of The Critic where they go to England and at one point, Prince Charles says, I think the joke is that there's a, a school that's so exclusive that he can't get his, his own children, William and Harry, then young, uh, enrolled in it. And they throw him out on his ass on the street. And he's like, you will not hear the last from me. And, and the guy in the doorman for the school is like, oh, yeah, who died and made you king? And Prince Charles just goes, no one. And I've always I've always thought that was the greatest joke ever written for television. And frankly, it was always a little soured by the fact that he he eventually did become king. But honestly, if he's like king for like a year, if even, that Mm -hmm. would be really, really funny. And I think then they're going to have to like what Williams next in line. They're going to have to make like redo all the money and make up mock up like extra big coins for his forehead and stuff. It's just going to be a whole thing. It's going to be great. That's great. Yeah, that's, uh, you know. Not a lot to love about the monarchy, but the one thing I love is because they're so like devoted to dumb tradition uh, to have this useless fucking title attached to some inbred idiot. Um, it, it's fun because, yeah, when someone dies or when something happens, there's just like all this bullshit has to go down. And now it's going to accelerate that process. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's great. Fucking they have no money like like they, they, they're having cost of living crisis. It's like they just spend like billion pounds for a celebration of this dude becoming king and how much is the funeral gonna run him yeah oh it's gonna be good stuff i fucking love it man um, yeah, i can't wait also, for the great hollywood film forthcoming oh yeah. yeah well i mean i'm sure we're all keeping abreast of the netflix series that apparently exists um, oh, I've, no. I've never the crown people tune into this people get excited about this i cannot genuinely i, I genuinely can't even fathom turning that show on i don't under like people who watch the crown i genuinely they may as well be a different species to me i can't even understand that (laughs) um but apparently it's quite popular so maybe it's a me issue man there's a lot of sickos out there who love the monarchy speaking of which uh returning after a brief hiatus it's adam myros 
Yes, hello, Steve. Myros, uh, so if it came down to it, would you let Camilla Parker Boyles uh, check your prostate? No, I don't think so. Steve. Camilla Parker Boyles <laughs> seems like a really mean. What is it? It's Bowles. Bowles. Boyles. I don't. I don't. I don't know what her actual name is. We just. We just. Doesn't matter. Camilla She'll never part. be queen. Nah, she won't be. Uh, at least. At least Charles made her an honest woman, so that's good. Uh, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you let her, Myros? You're just gonna fucking rot and die because you won't let her stick her thumb up your ass. Yeah, I mean, probably. If they, if that's the, <laughs> the way it goes, you know. Eh, probably, just best, probably just best to not find out about it until you're, you're on the outs, you know. <laughs> probably true. Uh, not, another thing that's kind of underrated is I'm sure a lot of people have been thinking, like, is it actually possible for Prince Charles to look worse than he already does? And I think we're going to find out real soon. So good to know. Uh, believe it or not, though, we're not here to uh, mock the monarchy uh, or just talk shit about British people in general. No, no. Uh, we're we're here with uh, three slices of horror Americana. Uh, we're taking a look at the Homegrown Horrors Volume 2 box set uh, because we are making it our life's mission to actually watch some of the bullshit that keeps accumulating on our shelves. And uh, this is, uh, as the name suggests, the, the second volume of Homegrown Horrors from Vinegar Syndrome. And these are just like regional horror films. Uh, that I'm guessing they have the rights to, but probably can't justify a standalone release. So it makes it a little bit more lucrative when you can package these together. Uh, but they're kind of fun because, I don't know, sort of like with the first box set, uh, when you get these cheapy regional horror films, uh, they're certainly not original by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, uh, you, they, Steve, remember, volume one does contain Winter Beast. Yeah, okay? well, which is, which is the greatest film of all time. That's true. Uh, That's true. Uh, basically, I mean, I, I will say that almost unironically. Winter Beast is, is incredible. That's an incredible yeah. feat of cinema. If there's one thing you need to know listening to this podcast, it's uh, Ray Harryhausen's a little bitch. And whoever did the special effects from Winter Beast is a golden god. So, uh but yeah, it, all these regional horror films, they're just they're just kind of like baffling in a lot of ways. <laughs> they're real head scratchers where they all feel very familiar and you can trace their lineages pretty easily. But they also have this kind of auteur bent to them where they're, they're really one of a kind. So uh, that brings us to the first movie from this set. And for my money, maybe the high point here. Um, even though I, I, you know, spoiler alert, I think all these movies are pretty middle of the road, but, um, Hanging Heart, <laughs> which is, uh, directed by, I think a man who has only directed one film. I'm pretty sure. Right. No, is there was Jimmy, two. Jimmy Lee. Two. Okay. Uh, a yeah, bit of a gap in between those though. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Also a Los Angeles based film, but yeah, Close Call came many years later, like 15 years on. Yeah. So uh, this is from writer director Jimmy Lee, who came over from South Korea as uh, an actor and he was hoping to make it in Hollywood. But uh, by his own admission, he, he kind of struggled with English. <laughs> so he couldn't be the leading man that he wanted to be, so he just said, fuck it, and he went back to school and learned how to be a director. And then he wrote 
hanging heart. And I, I guess this is sort of a slasher. Uh, it's It's got a little bit of maybe like stage fright in it is probably the, the best touch point I can think of because it's about uh, an, an actor who is wrongly accused of murdering several women. Uh, but the thing that makes this movie probably the most interesting of the three is one, I think it's it's probably like the most visually compelling film out of all of them. And also it, it, it's it got some weird hangups with homosexuality that it can't seem to escape from, uh, which, yeah, which makes it a bit of a head scratcher. It's it's yeah, I mean, I think it probably in a, this fits more like, I guess, erotic thriller of the like the 80s, 90s explosion. Um, it, yeah, it kind of fits into that mode more than I, you know, I think if you were going to this as like a horror movie and a slasher, it would probably maybe confuse and frustrate you more than it's just going to do by how how it's made, because it's kind of confusing and frustrating. I think that will be a, a through or a through way for all of these three movies to some degree. I think they all come with their caveats. Mm-hmm. And this definitely, I think, from the set, the the most polished of the the one that looks the most like a real movie made. Probably because it's know, not shot on sixteen millimeter like the right, other two. Yeah, <laughs> it's, exactly. So it looks pretty. It looks pretty cool and nice compared to the other two and yeah it's it's a confusing one because it starts off with a lot of the markers of like regular erotic horror like erotic thrillers of the era and you've got this handsome man who's a member of a of a specifically surrealist theater troupe i think they say that out Mm -hmm. loud that they're like which basically means there's just a lot of fucking curtains hanging on the stage that's basically all it is it's very surreal indeed and uh he he his girlfriends keep getting murdered it would seem which is troubling, and they kind of they they run through the motions of him and the women and all that kind of stuff fairly early on, and then at a certain point you're kind of like, man, it seems like we're really getting a lot more of the guy in this than than any of the women. They seem to disappear pretty quickly, and then around the point where he's like forced to strip naked when he's arrested, and some guy like like tears down his his underwear by jamming a nightstick in there. You're starting to think like this. This is real gay. <laughs> like this is a very, very like the what what you spent was like a homoerotic subtext has suddenly very quickly becomes the text, and yeah, uh, yeah it, it kind of it kind of an interesting thing there. It's kind of weird. You're like, is it? Is it? And it's like, oh no, it really is. Okay, they're going all in. So that's the movie. Yeah, it took you that long, Jack? My God, the opening of this movie is like this guy fucking standing before a line of men in bikini briefs, like... (laughs) <laughs> well, there there are those of them, but that's a surrealist theater. Who knows? You know, it's it's tough to tell. He's still like he's still having sex with women. The first sex scene is with a woman, although if I remember correctly, it is overlaid with incredible. It's almost like the Naked Gun with like with with. Uh, it's overlaid with like a person driving with footage of someone driving and starts starts focusing in on street signs, and so they're making love to like a stop sign being overlaid, and then a do not <laughs> enter sign is super imposed which i don't know how that fits in there and then it ends with a one-way sign and it's like this is definitely film technique to overlay images to create you know you know intertextual meaning and so on i am not quite sure what the meaning intended in that sequence is but sure sure as hell is is exactly that it's it's some superimposition so 
fascinating but yeah i mean it doesn't take long i don't remember if it's exactly at that point it was but like at a certain point it's like oh wait this is like a gay thing okay mm-hmm. um which you it's, know that's it's pretty cool it's, because uh, you know it it's the rare film where i genuinely don't know if the uh director is deeply homophobic or extremely gay or just trying to work through some things absolutely any, anyway to, really we, we all we all watched uh, there's an interview with jimmy lee on the vinegar syndrome disc and you watch it and I don't I we don't think he's gay, but I'm not a, I'm not sure. It's really hard to tell. He seems like he's got a little bit of bounce to him, you know, like, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I, but I think I think he was just trying like I think he was just intrigued by the idea of gay people in a slasher. Like, I, I, yeah, I have I no see. idea. Yeah, I, I don't know. At one point in the interview, he's literally like, yeah, so I wanted there to be gay stuff because gay men are are like women and women are always in like erotic thrillers and slashers you're just like what right but that yeah <laughs> and sure, i mean that's man. that's but like for a straight man in in a film market in 1989 and actually this film i believe was shot in 1983 and didn't get released 89 so it actually kind mm-hmm. of maybe predates a lot of the erotic thrillers i'm probably unfairly suggesting maybe maybe it escaped in 89 because it was like kind of at a kinship with a growing bubbling kind of like market for that sort of content um in 83 they existed but i don't think there was like it wasn't like a steady stream of them um i may have that wrong but i'm trying to think like it's uh it seemed like the, the back half of the 80s where it really started to lean in on that yeah but um I, you know if, if you're talking about movies and like a marketing thing you know like you, you want to make it your first movie and he talks about how you know difficult financing was and getting money and you know doing all this stuff you think you think the the easiest thing to do would be make a movie full of naked chicks because that's Mm -hmm. pretty tried and true and it's really odd that he was like yeah no i want to make it about gay men because they're like women and it's like Mm -hmm. women are generally a box office draw on the direct-to-video market if if you wanted to do that but uh he's he's got to he's he's an artist he has a different vision and it is it is a vision. I mean, I quite, mm-hmm. I quite enjoyed this movie. It's, it's a bit incomprehensible. It's, it's really confusing because the main element of it is basically a like a courtroom thriller, but the detective and the prosecutor are apparently building the case while the trial is happening, which doesn't make a lot of sense. They're like every day they go into court. And it's like, did you kill this woman? And he's like, no, I didn't. And it's like, fine, we'll go out and find more evidence to prove you did. And it's like, I don't think that's how courts work. That would be really confusing. The prosecutor um, just fucking like tooling around town trying to set the guy up and like, yeah. And then later on, there's a reveal where the prosecutor is also running for mayor, which just seems like a thing that's just mentioned out loud. It's not really a plot point at all. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of things going on. And the frustration of Hanging Heart, because it is a movie that is extremely obsessed with minute details, but at the same time, <laughs> ultimately, none of the details that it is obsessed with and fixates on actually matter to what's going on in the movie. But it makes it for it makes for a very frustrating and fascinating watch because you're like, oh, this is like you know what's what's the big twist here, and you know it's it's like. Imagine Chekhov's gun, but there's no payoff. That's every moment of this movie. <laughs> like, Chekhov's gun, gonna, but there's... Yeah, it's just, I'm going to slowly zoom in on this and really make you think about it. And then it's like, it's, it's not going to pay off at anything. And then there's these bizarre 
like surrealist moments too, like where the um the defense lawyer who has taken in our uh our protagonist uh, as he goes to court. So this guy's like living with him, but he also has like a, a homosexual obsession with the protagonist. But then there's this part where it's just like there's all this like Christ imagery and he's just oh, like yes. kneeling down and it's like what what in the fuck is going on? It's it's no, wonderful. It, it reminds me a lot, actually, speaking of 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 gay issues. Um, <clears throat> a guy I went to college with who was very flamboyantly gay, which is not really doesn't really tie in with everything else I'm about to say, because he was also fairly uh, unmedicated and had a lot of mental issues. He was a very interesting dude. Um, and and I hope he's doing okay. I don't know if he is or not. He was really, really just an oddball in a lot of ways. And I, I was just suddenly reminded of him. This movie kind of reminds me of him too, because once in college, he wrote an essay for like a creative writing class. And his essay was, I, I don't know, it was just like, it was just a bunch of stuff, just random things happening and stuff. <laughs> and someone said, that's, that's interesting. You know, it seems like there's a lot of symbolism here. Uh, you know, is, is there, right? Which is always a really good feedback note to get mm -hmm. in your essay. Like, it seems like this is symbolic, is it? So his response to that was, oh, that's a really good idea, right? Which is a really great piece of feedback too. And then he basically <laughs> did an answer key of symbolism for the story he had already written, where I think he <laughs> ad hoc invented what everything stood for. And there's an energy to this film that's similar. Like I mentioned, the signs during the sex scene are... Do they represent a uh, homo or like a homosexual kind of like grip on the main character? He's having sex with a woman, but he's second guessing it. Maybe. I mean, it could be, but I'm kind of doing all the work there. Uh, the Christ imagery doesn't really, he's not Christ, doesn't really fit that much. But I guess this dude likes him a lot, I suppose. Um, and more shots of his feet, which I, honestly, at a certain point, I was like, this feels like a tarantino adjacent gay foot movie i don't know there's just a lot of bare feet in this movie um but yeah it just reminded me that it just feels like someone who was taught in a in a school setting that films tend to have symbolism and he just kind of ran with that but didn't you know he didn't do the back half of it he just did the front end, like the forward facing symbolism part and what does it mean that's up to you just figure it out just make something up yeah pretty much pretty much uh I don't know. My Myros, what, what am I missing here? How, <laughs> were you able to connect the dots? I I don't know. Like I it would not surprise me to hear that Jimmy Lee was in fact not a homosexual and this was just like sort of a an interest because it, it's played in a very strange way, I, I would say. Like to me, like the character of Denny, your lead, is is very much treated like some sort of outsized version of of how you know you could it, it's almost like a theory exercise of male gaze but it's just like this absurdist uh, lust directed at this character that's like the driving force of his life is it seems like everyone he encounters is uh it's just you know, wants to lay in bed with him and uh, you know yeah uh, it, it, i get it, it. i got that wild. problem you know yeah. It's like it's like that that onion article, you know, why do all these homosexuals keep sucking my dick? <laughs> yes. That's just literally this guy's problem. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's like old psychologist, his stepdad, uh, the guy who he's renting a room from, uh, every woman he encounters at this surrealist play. Uh, I guess probably the red herring fellow, too. I mean, I don't know why else this guy's like stalking him through the streets. Uh, don't, don't spoil it, Adam. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it's it's strange. It, it is just like this guy's biggest problem in life is that every single person he encounters wants to fuck him. And uh, that that's kind of the driving force of the plot, I guess, uh, which is it's it's a way to go. Uh I don't know. It's a strange thing, but it is also, I think my problems with this movie, I, a lot of that stuff's interesting. A lot of this weird uh, mishmash of symbolism is, is vaguely interesting. I, I guess where it falls down for me is, uh, like probably all three of these movies, it feels quite a bit too long for what it's doing. Uh, it really yeah, starts oh, yeah. to sag at some point where I'm like, God, come on, fucking get moving. And uh, the other thing being like, this is in the homegrown horror set. I have a certain expectation, which is a shitty horror movie, which is this is like barely a horror movie. I think it's a stretch to even call it that, frankly. Yeah, yeah. And then on top of that, too, I, I think the fun thing about the homegrown horror stuff is because the other films in, in the sets are they're all like regional oddities. And this one feels very much like just a cheap L.A. movie. You know, mm -hmm. um, this yeah, a problem we'll come back to honestly with uh, I think Dead Girls as well. It doesn't feel as connected to region. This this one doesn't either, and it's it's mostly interiors. There are there's some location stuff that I guess if you're from LA, you're you know you can be like, oh, I know that place. But yeah, it doesn't seem particularly tied to the place, or it doesn't invest its sense of place with a kind of specific kind of uniqueness that really is the hallmark, I think, of the first box set. And I think the first box set is, I think, one of the crown jewels of Vinegar Syndrome's release slate. It's such a wonderful list of really peculiar films, and, and part of that is that kind of oddball outsider element to them, that, you know, they're, they're not Hollywood. Hollywood's a state of mind. You know, Hollywood's not a place, it's a state of mind. You can bring it anywhere in the world. But these movies are not shot in Hollywood, and they are not Hollywood either. They don't no. have the state of mind. They are operating in some other plane where there's less money, but also a lot more weird ad hoc decision-making going on. Um, and these these movies, I think, in this second set, they, they kind of capture some of that. I'm not as bothered by the fact that Hanging Heart isn't uh, a horror movie per se but i do i would agree that there's it doesn't quite have that same it's it's a little slick it's a little maybe too polished on one level to really play with all the other films it's it's gathered in with here although on the textual level underneath it's kind of like cinematic polish it's certainly every bit as kind of oddball and peculiar as any of those other films yeah i i'd agree with that i, I just do think it's difficult to categorize uh anything filmed in LA is regional horror. Sure. Uh, and I mean, again, that's not necessarily the edict of the box set, but the edict of the box set is horror. And I'm not bothered <laughs> that this film is not a horror film. Uh, great. That's, that's most films, but I mean, uh, imagine if you're a script editor could, could be pretty horrifying. Sure. Sure. Yeah. In the context of, of where this appears uh, and what I was expecting going in, I, I just kind of kept expecting it to, to escalate a little bit more than it did. It, it uh, yeah. 
it kind of remains very uh, reserved in its its. Yeah, it's slashers. it's an odd rhythm to it because it's kind of sleepy, but it doesn't really tap into that like magic vein of sleepiness, like say um, mm. Silent Night, Deadly Night Three, the like fantastically synambulant horror that's just sort of like <laughs> barely clinging to any kind of structure, and it's kind of amazing. Or actually, Bloodbeat, I think personally, also yeah. kind of captures that kind of like weird. Like, is this even happening? I just don't understand. Oh, yeah. Fucking it's, quaalude it's, horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a new subgenre. Um, but yeah, it, it's not quite operating on that level. It is just weirdly sedate. And as we, we, we hinted at earlier, I mean, it is a film that's like, who is the murderer? And uh, really functionally, if you're watching this movie, there are two suspects and one of them is so obvious. You're kind of like, well, it's not him. And it turns mm. out you would be correct in that assumption. So when the murder is revealed, it's kind of like, yep, that's that's about right. Yeah. Well, yeah. and then I because same thing. It's just like, OK, well, this is painfully obvious. So I was hoping with the direction that the movie was heading is like, OK, well, maybe it'll twist it around. So there's some like weird reason why he's, you know, murdering all these women. And then the reveal at the end is, you know, his defense lawyer who's letting him live with him and is kind of a creep and is clearly obsessed with him. is just like, I'm I'm just so gay. I can't stop wanting to do gay stuff with him. And that's why I killed all the women it's like I I don't I don't know if that is really the explanation I wanted. Movie. That's. <laughs> No, it's just yeah, it's, a little it's, bit. Aim a little higher. Come on. Yeah, it's just like the very moment he, he shows up, you're kind of like, I bet you this guy's the killer. <laughs> pretty, oh, yeah, pretty totally. Much. And totally, it's yeah. uh, like I, I think in a more interesting version of this script, they find a way to make the main character just be the killer, frankly, because <laughs> he is yeah. kind of like in and out of things the whole time. But no, no, this is you know you've got to stick with what you're doing, which is. Uh, you know, a guy became a killer because he wanted to fuck the main character, just like everyone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's tricky because it's got a, a you know, cross-dressing killer, which puts it in, you know, in league with some fantastically homophobic work, such as uh, Dress to Kill and Every Giallo Ever Fucking Made. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't it doesn't have the like dime store psychology. Like Steve says, it pretty much just ends with like, I just really loved him and I wanted to get rid of all the women in the way. But what's mm -hmm. what's troublesome about it is like you could see this as like this, you know, snapshot of gay struggle and kind of like the the difficulties of being gay, obviously, at a time in the 1980s. And this was shot in the early 1980s when, you know, being gay was like not that easy. Uh, it could cost you an awful lot in your life. Um, but the film's also weirdly interior and, and insular and in that like there's no real concept of gayness as being even a social force everyone just seems to exist in this tiny little nexus with each with each other there's no outside world almost uh the you know the the we say there's some location shooting and everything but there's no real sense of almost this takes place in some weird shadowy nether realm honestly you know uh mm -hmm. so yeah it just kind of it doesn't really coalesce into anything i would be surprised if anyone read the you know watched this movie and and like was able to extract any kind of like serious, you know, gay lens or view or, yeah. you know, kind of thesis from it. I just don't think it's there. I think it's kind of an assemblage of like hot topic concepts, you know, kind of like the, you know, this mm -hmm. I like gay is interesting, murder is interesting, you know, thriller, you know, and it's kind of like, okay, it is, it's all those things. But yeah, it's kind of like 
they're just kind of like hanging separately in in the script. Yeah, and and I think that's fine because you know, as a director and a screenwriter, I I think it's safe to say that Jimmy Lee is probably a weird fucking dude who's about as deep as a puddle. Which is that's all right because <laughs> even the surface level weird shit where you're like, what what, what is this leading to? I think it makes the movie all the more compelling, you know, like there's that whole scene towards the end where they're back in in the theater where his like the first woman he was banging got murdered when he was originally like framed. And he's with uh, the other girl that he's been hanging out with, who's like a hired prostitute, but she actually likes it. I don't know. There's a lot going on here. But the point <laughs> is, is the whole scene is them for literally like three and a half minutes, just kind of rolling around on the ground, giggling. Just, yes. And when I mean rolling around, I I don't mean like with each other. I mean, like just kind of like barrel rolling on the ground yeah. room to room. Like something <laughs> to- like, toddlers who, would do. It's very strange. Yeah, and it's like, who the fuck does this? Like, how I, I, I want to see the script where it's just like, and then they roll around and laugh for an extended period. Like, wh- <laughs> what, what are you doing, Jimmy? I, yeah, it I seems, don't know. It feels like an acting exercise. They decided to just throw in there. You know, it's, yeah. I don't know. Well, yeah, it's, I, it's, it's wild. It's a strange thing. And, and it's kind of carried because like the the lawyer character, like the guy's doing a really good job. <laughs> and he's he's not mm-hmm. an actor who's been at anything else, but he's like legitimately quite good in this movie. And it ends with like this strange monologue after he's been arrested. That's like pretty powerfully acted. And you're like, what the fuck is happening in this movie? I just don't understand. <laughs> like, what? Mm-hmm. this does not belong here. Yeah, no, it's it's got incredible like theater vibes, like you know, of amateur theater community kind of elements to it. And yeah, I mean, I think the the particularly yeah, the lawyer is he he really is he's doing something. He's he's pretty good. I mean, I think that's kind of what like as much as disparage elements of this film, um, like it's it's pretty watchable and it's pretty interesting. I w- I would give this one a passing grade. I quite I enjoyed it on balance, but like. Yeah, it's just this strange confluence of elements, some stronger than you would expect, many others weaker or more kind of like mixed up than you would expect. And it kind of, yeah, it all just coalesces into this film that uh, never really defies expectation in terms of its overall path. It's it's very straightforward, but scene to scene just is very peculiar ways of laying out the information that as Steve has mentioned, often is completely irrelevant. And <laughs> the rest of it is just sort of like, yeah, we kind of know who the guy is doing it is. Um, yeah. We we don't need this. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think... Uh, I I also quite enjoy this movie, honestly. Uh, it, it just wasn't what I was expecting going in. And it's also... Uh, it's also just a, a touch sleepy and long at times where, you know... We could probably cut out like one of the subplots where he gets imprisoned somewhere and a giant beefy man beats him with something or other. It, it just seems to happen about five <laughs> There's times. nothing gayer than a prison, apparently, I guess. Uh, well, a mental so- hospital might be even more gay where you've got apparently just this like fucking long blonde blocks like pro wrestler or something whipping him with a belt. <laughs> like, that is an incredible <laughs> sequence. Uh- <laughs> powerful stuff. That's powerful stuff. Uh, yeah, this, this one's a real curiosity, but, uh, it's kind of interesting going from this to the next movie in, in the set, which is, I mean, it's, it's cheap. It's shot on 16 millimeter, uh, but it, it might be one of the best examples of like 
the ultimate derivative slasher uh, to the point where it kind of feels like comfort food. Uh, this is Moonstalker is is the second film in this set. And it, it I don't know. I, I think this is like the Little Caesars hot and ready of, of slashers where you kind of know what you're getting. It's cheap and it's familiar and it's comforting to a degree. But at the end of the day, you know, you're eating absolute fucking garbage. Uh, <laughs> and that's kind of what <laughs> Moonstalker is. Uh, another movie where there's just some really curious choices that make me wonder what what the fuck is going on here. Uh, it is a bog standard, like Friday the 13th camp slasher knockoff. Uh, but it, it does a couple of things that are just wild choices that I, I cannot wrap my head around. Uh, first and foremost, this takes place in the dead of winter. And <laughs> I don't know if that was due to like funding and filming restrictions and they just had to make it work. I don't know. Isn't this, in, something... isn't this in Nevada? <laughs> it is. It's yeah. Nevada in winter. I, I kind of yeah. like this as a detail, but I will say that this with Dead Girls, the next film, which was also shot in the winter, has me, and maybe this is known among filmmaking communities, but like renting equipment and shit, is that just way cheaper in the off season in winter? Like, does everyone who has me a wonder. bit yeah, of I don't money know. It seems like, like in summer? Bet, it seems like winter in Reno, Nevada is probably like uh, 20 days or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's really odd. And and I don't know, like, yeah, is was it a, a, a choice just because it made sense or was it like deliberately like, let's let's do it this way. But it's so fucking weird because everything about this screams like, oh, you know, teens at a summer camp winter getting camp. killed. Yeah. Or, yeah, but no, it's just it's just winter camp. And it, <laughs> you're like, well, okay, it's, sure. it's like a camp survival qualification camp, I think is their cover, that they're all going to get like an outdoor certificate, which mm -hmm. is really funny considering half of them end up like fucking falling in a frozen river because they didn't think that was possible, among yeah. other foibles that don't make any damn sense. Yeah, yeah um, so it's it's a weird little twist. And don't get me wrong, I, I love a snow-covered slasher. And the other thing that I think is absolutely wild is the killer is initially fucking awesome. There's this whole, like, Texas Chainsaw-esque element to the first, I don't know, 15 minutes where there's this weird old guy uh, and he meets up with this family who is, of course, camping in the middle of winter, just with the family, you know, as you do. And he just kind of drones on and on. And then he goes back and he's got his, his fucking son who he like broke out of an insane asylum. And he's just like wrapped in a straight jacket, like a fucking white potato sack with the eyes and mouth cut out. And he's just droning on and on. He's like, Oh, there's people they are camping and they got a microwave oven. I've always wanted a microwave oven. And I got really excited because I thought this was going in a, you know, a, a cheap 16 millimeter fucking early eighties, just regional knockoff of Texas chainsaw. I was like, yeah, let's fucking do this. And then literally 10 minutes into the movie, uh, junior decides, ah, fuck it. I'm going to take off my creepy, weird slasher film outfit 
and just dress like every fucking guy at a country music festival. <laughs> it's much more Pop comfortable for the shoes. Well, right? I, I didn't yeah, even Pops, notice it. Pops dies. I didn't even clock and him then it's dying just like, oh, <laughs> until the, the cops psycho in, in the in the fucking straight jacket is gone. And now he's just in a he's in a plaid shirt with a, a Stetson and fucking sunglasses. <laughs> like, yeah. Should have never killed Pop. He was the best character in the movie. <laughs> he was. He was. Um, yeah. and, and then this one plays out exactly the way that you think it would, because it cost about $5. So um, after that initial 10 to 15 minutes, it just completely turns to sludge and uh, they, they don't have enough money for any special effects whatsoever. So um, yeah. most of the kills are, are pretty piss poor and off camera. Uh, but again, there is something kind of warm and comforting about this, right? Like I'm not a crazy person. It's just, it's nice when you just, you know, all the beats that are coming. Like the, it, it just, it feels like it was created by an algorithm, but um, in, a, in a very nice way. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually quite enjoyed this one. This probably is my favorite of the three, to be honest. And um, I think part of the, the reason for that is because Michael S. O'Rourke, who wrote and directed this, I realized later on he wrote Hellgate which is a horror movie I also have great affinity for. And Hellgate, I think it's kind of like, it, it makes me understand what's happening in this movie. And I think budget is the big issue, Steve. Like you mentioned, it, it the, the big thing that drags this movie down or holds it back is the fact that like a, a cheap slasher needs two things. It needs either enough money to make good kills or it needs just an ingenious special effects guy, like someone who can just mm -hmm. make crazy stuff happen out of nothing, right? And a lot of the great horror movies have had one or both. Just enough money to scrape by or just like Tom Savini when he was 18. You know, <laughs> one, yeah, one of those yeah. two things will get you get you over it. This film doesn't have either of those things. So the, the kills are mostly off camera, really kind of junky, kind of like obvious fake limb getting hacked off or whatever you know a guy gets his legs cut off and we don't see it that the, an actress gets her leg cut off and she just like slumps down on camera and that's like oh well we all know what happened so since they don't have the kills they really have to fall back on what i think i guess is o'rourke's other element which is his his kind of weird humor and he does this very kind of arch body humor that he likes to lead into and Hellgate has it too where you just have this very cartoony zany elements and I think mm -hmm. Hellgate is the example because like Hellgate had like the special effects people in Hellgate worked on fucking Hellraiser right so mm -hmm. they, these were these were those really good guys and Hellgate has that and it tempers and it takes it allows the humor to kind of stretch its legs and move around because it's no longer like the load bearing pillar of the entire movie, uh, which which makes it a lot more lenient. You can kind of, you know, enjoy it and let it breathe and maybe not have it in every single scene. Moonstalker is the issue where really, since he can't do the kills, everyone has to play up their comic foibles in every single scene. And it's, I think, it's, some of it's kind of endearing and a little bit fun, but it, like I say, it's kind of like, it's there's too much pressure on it to work. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a little bit kind of constrictive, because obviously at a certain point when you're making a cheap movie, the cheapest thing is just having a bunch of people in one scene that's lit and set up and just have have them keep talking. You could do that all night, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that's kind of, I think, the, the issue with Moonstalker. But I'd say with great affection, I do, I, I really kind of like it. I do think the wintry Nevada setting is 
an interesting and a genuine regional element that again mm-hmm. more than the any of the other films in this box set this film does feel like it's of a place and you're very much like a not hollywood kind of unusual location um mm-hmm. it's got that going for it but yeah it, it's kind of like it's compromised but i think yeah there, there's certainly an enjoyment there and the kills have yeah, i mean there's plenty of them it's got a mm-hmm. great music theme, if nothing else. It really it only one really. There's just yeah. one musical cue, but it's it's pretty good. So no, you know. it uh, yeah, I, I think you're I think you're onto it. Is like it it really it puts too much pressure on itself because it doesn't have the the fun special effects to to lean on, uh, which is why I mean, if we're talking about winter regional horror films, I think Frostbiter Wrath of the Wendigo is a great example of you're that. Right, where they just, yes, just balls out on on goofy kitschy special effects and it it it, it, yeah. it carries the film basically that's, that's a better yeah, movie doesn't have this. that going for it <laughs> yeah oh yeah um but it, yeah i i don't know i i struggle with this one a little this bit this one does and, have some <laughs> good things that, like one thing i did think was really funny that they did in this movie structurally is um you've got our hero or our apparent hero uh, and he, like, towards the end of the movie, he just gets, like, dispatched just randomly, like, no resistance whatsoever, which I thought was really, really entertaining. And I don't know if that was, like, really planned specifically as a gag, um, but it was really great. He's, like, he's he's romancing the girl and everything seems to be going right. And then the killer shows up and you're like, all right, probably he's going to struggle for a little bit by her sometimes. Like, no, pretty much he's instantly gone and she's on her own with the killer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got you know it's got these kind of funny little bits and pieces some of them are like weirdly overcomplicated like the all the the detective finding all the bodies in this perpetual motion machine Good that Lord. makes them continue moving while there's a tape recorder singing camp songs or like I, it's probably it's, the strongest it's, it's image in the only film. one camp song jack with yes uh, she'll you be know, coming well, round the mountain <laughs> <laughs> nice a nice rights free camp song mm-hmm. the best our favorite. The best. but yeah. yeah it's it's definitely got those kind of elements i think like another one um like madman is another like i guess yeah. that's even that's even closer to being a friday the 13th ripoff because i think they shot it in the same woods as friday the 13th but i think also kind of a wintry camp one yeah uh, much better much better budget much better put together than this but this kind of yeah it's fun it's like the store brand kind of mixed up one that mm-hmm. you know you throw on when you really love slasher movies yeah exactly this is like when my mom used to save money by buying like the she wouldn't get me cinnamon toast crunch she'd get me like cinnamon squares and it came in a fucking bag instead of a box and yeah that's that's what this is malto um, meal also, horror yeah a little malto meal baby uh also interesting to note here with Moonstalker is it blows my fucking mind that this was released in 1989. Uh, and, and it makes me wonder if it was initially conceived or shot at an earlier period, because it really does. Like, it feels very, like, early slasher knockoff. It feels like a 1980-81 movie, because, um, I don't know, it's it's so indebted to Friday the 13th, uh, Part 1 and 2, and, and Mad Men, and both of those, I think, came out, what, like, 81, 82? So, yeah. Well, and its uh, it, credits it's are, like, completely stolen from Halloween. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just so odd, because I think by 1989, just the direction that slashers were heading, um, it, it's, it's wild to me that, one, this was shot on 16mm and not shot on video, and two, it, it really does feel like a, a very early regional slasher as opposed to something a little bit 
you know, later in the golden era. So yeah, and it's a um, feeling of maybe yeah. almost he thought he was making a throwback, but it kind of doesn't mm-hmm. read as one now. May and no. like maybe, I, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's hard to say. But even then, it's like I I don't know with with what like you know, seven or eight years of, of space in there. I don't know if you could really call that a throwback. But also, I, I think when you get to this area, it does it kind of compresses time. And if that was the goal, it certainly doesn't feel that way anymore. But yeah, I don't know, man. This is this is a fucking head scratcher, and it's uh, it's it's worth throwing on. Like Vinegar Center has been killing it with the uh, the, the very sleepy, uh, watchable but not great slashers. <laughs> like yeah. I've got an entire pile of these that are all just like, yeah, this this it's is true. good. It's comfort a film food. that would a film that would fit absolutely into a homegrown horrors box set is terror at 10 killer but vinegar syndrome in their infinite wisdom and i thank them for this decided not to put that one in a homegrown horror set and instead give it a 4k standalone release Hell which yeah, is brother. probably the stupidest fucking thing imaginable but i love them for <laughs> it because that movie is wild and it is it's an incredibly like oklahoma driven location slasher movie that's mostly just girls talking about their fears being as women uh, it's like a weird feminist inflected slasher movie. It's great. Uh, <laughs> take that as a recommendation. It's not in one of these box sets, but pick that one up too. Well, maybe I'll go in for that one. But this one, kind of not for me. I got to say, I'm, uh, I, I, had, I, I struggle with the back half of this. I was kind of uh, facing the ADD demons at that stage of the film because I was like, well, this is... This has got literally no no surprises in store for anyone. It's just <laughs> the most paint by numbers shit. Uh, and I kind of loved it at the beginning. Like I thought that when it was riffing on Texas Chainsaw, this whole pop thing, like this campfire with the family, and it, I thought it was good. I was like, oh, this is gonna be a blast. And then it just discards all that stuff, and it's just like, well, okay, here we are. Here's another Friday the Thirteenth, but it also because of its limitations with gore and you know they're not paying for nudity either which is uh, that's why you buy the ticket to friday the 13th is gore and nudity (laughs) and this has neither so it ends up feeling strangely like uh like an almost studio film that's that's aiming for a pg-13 release you know there is a tiny spot of female nudity inexplicably in a a tent shower scene Oh, Which yeah. I don't know you what like shower a- they have for this thing where there's infinite hot water. They can all just go for lengthy showers in the middle of the woods. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly if you're going this for, for TNA and, and violence, don't. You, no, you get about a quarter of an areola here. That's about it. <laughs> uh, well, I, I guess that brings us to uh, the third and uh, I don't know, maybe the most baffling. It's It's hard to say because all of these. <laughs> I felt like when I was watching this, you know, like when a dog is a little bit confused and they kind of look at you and they just kind of like cock their head to the side. That was me when I was watching all three of these movies. Uh, But Dead Girls from 1990 uh, shot in Kern County. uh, Shout out to Hatchapi. Shout out Bakersfield. Shout out Palmdale. Um, (laughs) This is like, I I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of these uh rock band focused uh horror slasher movies kind of uh tread the same ground which is like oh this rock band is doing satan stuff and bad things are gonna happen uh this is you know the the 
hard rock zombies, which Vinegar Syndrome just put out like last year, does basically the same thing. But the Dead Girls are an all girl rock group uh, where we don't really get to hear any of their music. It's like one song. I feel like they had one song for the movie. They do. That's exactly what they have for the opening and closing credits only. Mm -hmm. And, And you guys remember when like during the 80s there was that whole like satanic panic and uh people were like oh if you uh play this song backwards it'll tell you to kill yourself and Ozzy oh, yeah, Osbourne's suicide solution the Osbourne thing yeah yeah so basically the dead girls as a band is just like what if there was an all-girl band and their whole thing was like we only write suicide solution over and over again and uh people simply cannot stop killing themselves for the dead girls uh so th- that's pretty much it. And all these girls, they all have like I- extreme heavy finger quotes personas <laughs> or there's like one girl's name is like Betty Beirut and there's Lucy Lethal and Nancy Napalm. And uh, I don't know, like one of them is obsessed with like paramilitary things <laughs> and like fucking grenades <laughs> and shit. And one of them's a uh, magician for some reason. Yeah, yeah, one of them like just a sleight of hand <laughs> as her death metal trick. It's it's all very strange, and it's like one of them like fake kills herself on stage. Oh every wait, we night. didn't even get into the most inexplicable one, where the uh, two members of the band are siblings who fuck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. There's one. There's one guy in the Dead Girls, Randy. Yeah, Walsh. he plays drums and fucks his sister. Yes, which yeah. is not. Uh, that's just like out in the open. That's just like their character trait. They're siblings. Who yeah. don't know if they're actually siblings. I that could be theater. Like they're an assembled band. I think so. I which I don't know what the statement is on this this whole thing. But yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, the big problem here is right. We're describing all this, and you're like, you know, okay, this this could lead to some interesting things. There is no band footage in this movie. There's no music. There's no. There's no concert. There's no music video. There's no time given over to like a musical interlude. That doesn't no. happen anywhere in this movie. And that honestly kind of makes me mad. Yeah. Like all the things that you would expect, like, you know, the musical performances and um, it's it's not here. It, this is a no. movie that is completely overwritten, uh, both in <laughs> terms of where the plot eventually goes and the fact that everyone just stands around talking about absolutely fucking nothing forever. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's kind of wild. Uh, but yeah, and so there's, there's a lot of things going on here. So you, you've got this death rock band, and our main character, uh, one of the women in the band, she also has like premonitions about people dying. Uh, and she has a sister who is like semi-catatonic and also she feels guilt because they keep telling people to kill themselves and well, she's like why can't we write nice have songs? you missed the connection here steve <laughs> the the sister well, yeah, the sister in the opening film is leading yeah. a group of teens in a, a suicide in a, a suicide yeah due yeah. to the music yeah. so she is semi-catatonic because she has slitter wrists and uh yeah, not die as you do. You know, when we say semi-catatonic, what we really mean is that for long periods when she's on screen, she lies motionless, and then in other scenes, she just walks around and talks completely normally, yes. which is yeah. really she was confusing. Yeah, that was the thing; like she was comatose and dying, and then they brought her to the cabin, and the whole time she just seems kind of fine. Yeah, <laughs> she, seems, I mean, okay. she just needs to get out of the house. Seems I just to be. think she's she's like 
I, I don't know what her fucking deal is. Like, what, she slit her fucking wrists and all of a sudden she's like, I, I don't know, she has Asperger's or something? Like, the way that she's characterized here doesn't make any fucking sense. Uh, and, and then you've got Elmo, which that this is great, too, where he's <laughs> like, you know, in, in, in this is a great slasher, but in pieces, how there's the, the red herring guy who's like the groundskeeper gardener and he's just like gleefully like chainsawing bushes and shit. That's basically what Elmo is. Uh, but he goes like full, simple Jack and, and they show up and uh, all the girls are instantly like, oh, no, who's that large man? He's clearly going to do horrible things to us. And then the explanation is like, oh, no, he is but a mere simpleton. He's just some fucking short bus piece of shit. Like <laughs> just completely like talk shit to this guy who is has done nothing wrong. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like horribly mean spirited. Yeah, he and, seems and, like but a he nice remains fella. a red herring. Yeah, he seems like a totally fucking nice guy uh, until the end where he is uh, unceremoniously bludgeoned to death. <laughs> God, there's a lot of bludgeoning in that scene. They really they really fit it in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if hanging hearts issue is that they've got like the murderer and one red herring and it's kind of obvious Dead Girls goes the other way by having so many red her herrings that when it actually starts the reveal process, the, the reveal process takes like 25 minutes mm -hmm. and is incomprehensible. Oh, yeah. Even the within it, the I'll reveal. Never... Yeah. Who is the killer? I've already forgotten because there was like five of them no, revealed instantly. Jack, it's exactly who you assumed it would be, which is the boyfriend who comes back from nowhere uh, when yeah, she's that's... revisiting a small town. And you're like, oh, this guy's the killer. And that, <laughs> and that he is right, yes, but not he before there like four other people who who also yeah. was like yeah i want to kill everyone but well, i didn't I, kill all these people and that's the problem is you've got <laughs> one guy the boyfriend who who is yeah like a, just the most inessential characters like oh yeah he's just running around killing everybody in this fucking rubber skeleton mask uh but you have three other characters who are, are like really want to murder people. They just haven't gotten around to it yet, <laughs> which is fucking crazy because you've got you've got the the member of the band and then her brother who she's fucking and they oh, which, by both... the way, point of order, Steve, uh, these characters are not credited by their uh, weird stage names. They're credited by their characters, actual names, uh, both ah. uh, both of which uh, are Grant, Dana and Mark Grant, which which does lend credence. To them being siblings who fuck and not just being an act. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which, why you would put that in your script, I have absolutely no idea, but... <laughs> just to get, get people talking, it's gotta have a hook. Their whole thing was like, they didn't know who the killer was, so their plan was to, uh, like, isolate the other two women who are still alive and just fucking kill them. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. The, the, the main girl killed them first because she thought they were the killer. It's it's fucking bizarre. And then you've got this curmudgeon nurse who is with the uh, cata not semi catatonic, not catatonic, because, you know, you slit your wrist and then all of a sudden you just you just can't fucking deal with shit. Uh, but she's like the caretaker for this girl. And she's a dick the whole time. And you're like, oh, maybe she's the killer. No. But then you get to the end. And she's like, well, I'm not the killer, but I'm not going to help anybody or do anything because I think you're all pieces of shit. <laughs> so she's yeah, just she, like complacent in all the murders that are happening. <laughs> yeah. And, and also another thing like this, what gets me about this movie, I think, is 
it has so many different avenues of attack for like distinguishing itself and you know like it's got the rock band group it's got this the nurse hanging around you know you could do the sexy nurse you do the rock band stuff you know put in musical performances lean in you know they're they're out in the wilderness you know you play up those elements it doesn't like to me this this movie honestly is my least favorite i think of the three because it just sort of it doesn't really capitalize on any of its ingredients it's kind of like you know, there's no songs, there's no music. It's like, I, I put down, it's like Vicious Lips if it was directed by a normal person, which is mm -hmm. just, that's kind of what it is. It's just sort of like a boring version of, like, Albert Pune's insane film. <laughs> and this is Jack uh, calling the director the music. of Things a normal person. <laughs> well, no, it, it, but it's not that Things. It's a different one. It's not the Canadian Oh, it is. It's a different no one. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different mm -hmm. movie called Things. We can't comment on that. We don't. And this guy went on to direct pornography. Oh, no, I just saw so, Things and assumed it was the same guy. Uh, that's my bad. Yeah, no, no. There's many things out there apparently. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just a movie that just doesn't capitalize on any of its ingredients in any kind of a satisfying way. And like Steve says, it's incredibly talky for the kind of film that it is. Uh, yeah, it just sort of it kind of just fizzles along without really ever catching spark never really taking there's no like satire of you know music groups or you know kind of rock excess it's, it's just kind of like a couple of ideas that have never really been fleshed out at all and it's a sort of disappointing in that mode like oh, the whole time i was like they're you know they gotta get there we gotta play some songs we gotta hear another mm. song from them they gotta like strap on guitars and like show us why everyone's obsessed with them no, never. Not at no. all. Why'd you do that? No. Uh, yeah, it's it's super weird. Uh, and and then uh, the way that it's talky too is super annoying because uh, the the woman who plays the the girl in the band who's like obsessed with guns and grenades and shit, um, she just talks like a weird like Republican Twitter militia guy constantly, uh, and she never shuts the fuck up. And then the brother fucker in the band, she her dialogue is just non fucking stop. And it's it reminds me of like after Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction came out and there was that whole like movement of indie filmmakers who were just trying to do Tarantino dialogue. That's that's what she talks like, just like a cheapy indie Tarantino obnoxious overwritten character. And I I can't fucking stand it. Yeah, it's got uh, that good like late '80s slasher problem too, where you're like half the, it's like three quarters of the women of the band look identical. So you're like, wait, who's <laughs> who's that? What's happening? Yeah, it's like I don't. Know. And also, again, like you playing in on like nudity or whatever. There's like one semi-nude scene in this film, which I think is really really funny because it's a woman sunbathing, and she has a laborious scene of her putting on sunscreen for longer than you would think. And then after mm -hmm. doing that, then taking her top off, which I thought was a really, really funny touch, because you would think if you're going to lean in on the seedy side of things, you, you know, functionally, you'd want to put sunscreen on your exposed breasts, right? Mm -hmm. And also functionally, if you're making a seedy slasher movie, you might like to see a lady touch her breasts. Yeah. But no, <laughs> no, they just, they fucked up everything there. It's very... I thought you, you were going to say well, it I mean, was a laborious scene of her, like, 
storming away from the rest of the people who wouldn't swim with her, which goes on for like 10 fucking minutes. I'm like, what is happening? Dude, there's a lot of laborious elements here. Uh, yeah, it, it's this movie is uh, this movie's also like an hour and 45 yeah, minutes long, which should is be, insane. It should be 85 minutes at most. It's even, yeah, like this is an insanely overpopulated film. Um, and it really, it really stands out, you know. Like, really, a, a good good slasher length is really, like, 80 minutes and then give or take based on what you've figured out. But, like, an hour and 45 mm. minutes, like, you better be working with grade A beef here, and well, they are they, not. They are sure not. I, yeah. Like, yeah, no, this is... I I wasn't, like, huge on Moonstucker, but at least there's, like, parts of it where I'm like, well, this is really fun. They did a great job here. This... No, this sucks. This is a bad fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's... And again... And again, like regionally speaking, what was this? Is this North California somewhere? Steve? Yeah, Central like, Valley. Central, Central Valley. Valley. Okay. So, yeah, like it seemed incredibly nondescript to me. And there's very, again, it's kind of like it's out on a hill somewhere, like some some nice little scenic area. There's maybe a shot of a suburban kind of like domestic residence for one scene like, there's nothing here that's like particularly like oh i know that place or that place is interesting it looks completely generic from a location perspective yeah. so yeah it kind of disappointing it, this one feels like a misfire in the set to me yeah. even even hanging hearts weird snoozy la is still like there's the homegrown element of it it does have the feeling of like this some guy made a movie when he like Probably didn't know how. It's got yeah. that element to it. Well, this Dead I, Girls feels much more streamlined than that front, but not regional. Yeah, and and here's the weirdest thing about Dead Girls is so Hanging Heart and Moonstalker, um, both uh, <laughs> auteur driven uh, films written and and directed by like one dude, uh, Jimmy Lee for Hanging Heart and uh, Michael S O'Rourke for Moonstalker, uh, both writers and directors who really didn't have big careers and then mm -hmm. somehow dead girls is it's got a separate writer <laughs> which is wild and it's directed by dennis divine who pretty prolific horror exploitation softcore director uh, he's one of those guys where i don't know if you hop on tubi right now and you pull up a random piece of shit horror movie it's probably directed by Dennis Devine or Mark Bologna. Like, that's just reality. Um, so, yeah. yeah, somehow against all odds, Mr. Dead Girls, uh, Dennis Devine, has had a, uh, a, a wonderful career uh, making low-budget films. Well, he didn't, didn't make a wonderful, wonderful film here, that's for sure. I, it, it's hard to even describe, like, how confounding this, this, the end of this movie is, like, it's pretty wild. I, I you've described events that occurred. I'm I'm not even clear on half of them. Uh, frankly, I I was just totally spun out. Like, what the fuck is, is even going on here? Like, uh, and yeah, and for the reveal to be exactly what I assumed it would be all along that this Christian uh, boyfriend from small town USA who's not in the movie was the killer because why else was he even introduced? Uh but. Again, you. This is the sort of thing. If you're familiar with the genre, that it feels like you could fucking take a nap and your pen would auto write the correct answer, uh, which is, uh, yeah, he must have had a relative who was involved in this death cult or whatever. You know, They're, oh, his girlfriend ran away and he didn't even she didn't even notice that his cousin was one of the kids who died or something. So he's 
He's going to get his revenge. And no, there's none of that. I, I guess he kills him because he, he's going into like a fugue state or something. And then when he's clumped on the head, he's like, oh, no, I'm sorry. I killed everyone. It's like, what? God damn it, movie. Just do the simple thing. Yeah. The guy the guy who did all the killing is is sad that he did it. And then the two people who weren't the killers are bummed out that they didn't get a chance to do it first. <laughs> what, what a There's a very, thing. very bitter view of society in here. I'm looking through Divine's uh, career, and I will say his highest rated movie with a 7.2 out of 10 rating in IMDb from 19 ratings, is is something called Sleazy Does It with Sally Mullins, which I think is pornographic, but I'm not entirely sure. It might be pornographic or softcore erotic stand-up. So, mm. yeah, and most of his stuff is like 2.4 to 3.5 out of 10 ratings. Uh, a lot yeah. of vampires, a lot of... Uh, Lot of, oh, yeah. he did. I mean, he did some Camp Blood stuff. He did the Axe Grinder series. These are like known to be trash. Yeah. So uh, I mean, he I, did I all the knockoff of the of the Lalorna movie from 2019. He did that one. Yeah, uh, oh, yes. Alice in Murderland. Can't go wrong there. <laughs> yeah, I, I genuinely would not be surprised if the 36 credits he has as a director on IMDb. I wouldn't be surprised if Dead Girls actually does come out as the cream of the crop. Yeah, probably. Uh, it looks it like pretty not. slim pickings. But yeah, it's just kind of I don't know. I don't know how you assemble a cast of like like this movie does. Like it seems like it has the resources to get and it was shot with video in mind. So like it's it's mm -hmm. you know, it was shot on 16 mil, but it was really shot to like be shown a video it's it's kind of wild actually to see the film in such good quality uh image wise now with this blu-ray restoration um but it's just yeah just just doesn't really capitalize on the things i mean it's not like racy or you know i mean you think okay like my you know lizard brain making this like sexy slasher movie like you've got a bunch of women uh, rock stars like you think this would just be a recipe for like some sexy setups not really. They're like eventually they go to a lake and one of them's in a swimsuit. That's that's about as much thought as they put into that. Just mm -hmm. really, it just kind of feels completely uninspired, honestly, yeah. Um, yeah. and just not not quirked up in any way that would make you kind of look at it twice. It just feels very much like it's like a TV movie slasher almost. Like it has that kind of pedigree of just sort of we didn't think it mattered you know like mm -hmm. why, why isn't this stuff in there nah, just, we didn't we didn't think it needed to be there it was quicker the way we did it just has that kind of feeling and um, but without any of the like oddball sensibilities that really would elevate so many of those other slashers that couldn't because like anyone can make a slasher movie and everyone has made one that's kind of like the fun of the genre so you mm -hmm. got to start like picking it like why you know for everyone who made one, why, what do they focus on? And this one just feels like they just didn't really focus on anything. It's just kind yeah. of a very well-rounded slasher movie, uh, but not even, because that doesn't work. It's like, we got all the stuff together. I mean, you know, even that's not fair, because honestly, the sound sucks ass. They couldn't restore the sound well for this <laughs> thing. So, you know what? It's not even not even that well made. So, there you go. See, that's I, Dead Girls. Unlike you, psychos, I did not buy some fucking DVD set and watch this as God intended. Uh, rip from VHS on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's honestly, you know, you probably got the proper scuzzy effect from that thing. Mm -hmm. No, it's true. Uh, God, th this set, though, is is insane. Like two out of three of these movies have like feature length documentaries. And I think 
I think Moonstalker actually has two feature length documentaries. So they they go in. They're really in the can for these movies. I give them yeah, full yeah. full profit. And I think they could be fun, honestly, because I feel like these kind of tier of movies, it's like reassemble everyone who's involved and have them talk about it. And it's just a bunch of people who are probably not professional film people talk about that like weird fucking weekend where they went and made a movie. That's endearing. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a fun thing, you know? Yeah. Well, I'd say that about wraps things up. So, uh, Jack, what are you putting over this week? Yeah, I've I've not been watching a lot of movies of recent. What I what I'm gonna put over is uh what I've been wasting my life on with to varying degrees of entertainment is the circle, which you might know is a Netflix reality TV show, but I dug deeper and I found out it originally started on Channel 4 in the UK. And oh. I dug up the first three seasons of the English original show, which happened to be way better than the, the Netflix ones. Uh, the Netflix ones is kind of funny. They copied all, all the stuff in that. Like it was it's like Netflix presented. It was like, oh, this is interesting. This is kind of a lot of work. It always felt too polished to me for a Netflix production. And now I understand why, because basically Channel 4, who make real television, uh, did everything first. And then Netflix just handed them a buttload of money to copy them. Uh, with Americans. It's even shot in the same place. It's really funny. Um, they, It's shot in, like, Greater Manchester, and Netflix mm. literally used the exact same building, but they insert footage of American cities in between the shots to confuse what? you. <laughs> Which is really great. great. Um, And, you know, it, it's just one of the things. But anyway, The Circle, it's a social media thing. Everyone basically has to, like, message each other from different rooms. No one meets face-to-face, so people are pretending they're catfishing, pretending to be other people. On, on paper, it sounds unwatchable, and if I were more sensible, it probably should be, but it's actually pretty funny, uh, particularly by the time it gets to people getting tactical about it and everyone just becomes insane. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, reality TV, obviously, it's it's trash, and it's kind of just kind of goofy, and you're not going to learn anything. But, uh, yeah, The Circle is kind of fun. If you can find the original English show... It's better than what's on Netflix, I think, but I don't know how easy that is to find unless you're into torrenting. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's on Channel Four Player or something. Maybe you can use a VPN. I have no Brit idea. Box. Yeah, you gotta get that. <laughs> yeah, Britbox. Brit Who knows? That could, Brit could be. I think Britbox is just full of like, uh, you know, like what we say, anti-social detectives in small towns. I feel like that's the 80% of their roster in Downton Abbey or whatever the equivalent yeah, is. Or like, yeah, the, the the shows that aren't Downton Abbey but are basically the same. Like, it's just right, like yeah. fucking old-timey Upstairs, Victorian downstairs shit. and things like yeah. that that came, you know, the forebears, but that actually are just stuffing, boring things, yeah. you know? The major but, conflict is some lady lost her hairbrush or some shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's like someone used step. the wrong fork. That's 45 minutes of television right there. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah may- maybe you can watch uh, reruns of Bo Selecta on BritBox. I don't know. Yeah, I think the most, seen uh, Selecta? the most damning... I uh, forgot that show exists. <laughs> the most damning <laughs> indictment of BritBox is that my mom, who is the biggest mark for such shit on Earth, uh, she got, like roped into a free trial that she was paying for and was furious because it had nothing she was interested in. So that's saying something. Holy shit. That's saying something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. What, she doesn't want, like, fucking tea time with Mr. Darcy or whatever oh, the fuck God. they show As far on. as I know, that's exactly what she usually wants, but apparently the, the quality is, is not there on the old Brit box. Wow. Wow. That's a bu- I figure, like, the, the real cream of the crop shit will just end up on PBS eventually anyway. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just gotta so. wait it out. That's right. 
Uh, Myros, what are you putting over? Well, I'm I'm going to put over something even more normy, perhaps, than reality TV. Uh, I I missed last week. I had a lot of uh, personal nonsense going on that didn't leave me a, a great deal of bandwidth for uh, stuff. So I was like, well, I'm going to find something that I can sit down and watch. And as much as it pains me to admit when the internet is right about things, uh, I, I, I said, I'm going to watch this fucking the bear uh and the internet's right it's it's pretty good uh yeah if if you're not uh if you if you just you know you need a show that's uh, that's kind of comfortable and uh will will get you through when you you just need something to concentrate on rather than uh, the the world around you that is crumbling apart uh let me tell you th- this is this is a pretty solid show i i would i would recommend it uh I mean, you've already been recommended uh, The Bear by AV Club or what the fuck else ever, but uh, normally uh, that keeps me away from things. But in this rare instance, I was like, fuck it, I'm going to watch this. And um, uh, it's good. It's good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Check it out. Yeah, that's uh, that's fair. It's it's a good show. It it kind of I, I have to be in the right mood for it though because yeah. it does make me feel anxious. Like I feel like I'm at work sometimes when I'm watching it. That's kind of uh, my thing. I <laughs> I never watched it. I watched the first episode of it, and it's like obviously it's very Chicago, uh, very consciously so. Um, uh, and and the first season or the first episode I watched is just a bunch of people being like shouting at each other and being very like, oh, we're chefs. Being chef is being in a tight space and shouting. And I was just kind of like, I just don't need this energy right now. And I just never, <laughs> never watched the rest of it. And that also, it's like, I thought it was accurate. Like, yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a comedy, but it's, and I think it is a comedy to some degree, but it's not like funny, ha ha comedy. It's like, it's, it's a bit more dark and like character centric. And I was kind of like, eh, no, I just, I just wanted something that was like jokes. Yeah. No, so. it's, it's not a jokes show, but it is, it, it has enough levity. And I also would say, uh, they nailed the tone a lot more in the second season, I feel. Uh, so, you know, I'm not going to yeah, say. I don't, I don't know. At one point later on, I wandered back in because my wife watched all of it. And uh, I wandered back in and they were just playing fucking Tangerine Dreams soundtrack for Thief. And I was like, oh, those Chicago credentials are being hammered <laughs> home again. <huh?" laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. It, it can be stressful. But again, sometimes uh, the world around you is much more stressful. And it's just, it's just got to a good to vicariously ignore your own stress and be like, eh, the bear. It, it, uh, again, I was expecting to hate it because fuck the internet and fuck media critics. Uh, but Mm. it's pretty good. Also fuck Italian beef sandwiches. This is my, my Chicago. (laughs) We've had this discussion, Steve. I think you need to dig deeper. (laughs) I'm I'm not even a big advocate. They're, They're fine. I just, you know, I think they're, they're fine. Uh, wouldn't really get this is a funny thing like all the, the all the food that people think of for chicago i'm just like yeah it's okay i'd eat them but it's not really yeah that's really the my- problem is chicago has such a, a a wonderful just breadth and depth of of culinary delights and yet the three regional cuisines that the city is known for chicago style deep dish the chicago hot dog and the italian beef sandwich are all like bottom tier bullshit it's fucking stupid. I don't, I don't think bottom tier is correct. I'm pretty I think fond the of the deep dish. dish. It's, it's, it, yeah. It's not an everyday pizza, but it's, it's quite good. It's not a pizza. It's not <laughs> a fucking pizza. <laughs> All right. This, this show's going to go oh, on for God, at least another hour. We fired this one out. Captain New York. No, you got to be able to fold it. 
No, no, no. Yeah. You, know, you know, I, I, I'm fine with deep dish pizza. I think Detroit style pizza is the ultimate deep dish pizza because I can eat it with my fucking hands like a normal I person. I would agree. You're making I, me knife dish. and fork a fucking piece of pizza, and then I have to wait a goddamn hour for it just to cook. Yeah, I don't You call it a casserole, that's fine. Casserole could be good too, and that's a fine good yeah, casserole. No, it's. I, I'm. I'm still gonna eat the shit out of it. Like, don't get me wrong. I just don't want to wait an hour. Well, I just. I just saying. Like, I mean, when when the compulsion hits, and I've, I've recently, I ate one just last weekend. I just had a weird. I was just like, man, I just feel like deep dish. Great option to have, but I like. I think Chicago's strength. Firstly, is they'll keep telling you it's like God. Oh no, it's tavern style. That's Chicago pizza, and it's like okay, fine, no one cares. But what is nice about Chicago is, and which I think is actually true about Chicago from pizza perspective, is Chicago is like the best pizza city in America. You can get every style of pizza to a high mm-hmm. quality in Chicago, yeah. which is not the case everywhere else. I think. Chicago maybe has the most I'm pretty sure it is the most pizza places to people in the United States, which almost certainly means it has the most pizza places to people in the world. I can't imagine anyone's beating out <laughs> the US on that metric. Yeah, it's yeah. it's just a pizza town. Italian yeah. beef, it's it's a good sandwich. I've had it. It's very enjoyable. I wouldn't say it's bottom tier. I think, That's you know, you just, it sounds like you got one with chewy beef, and that just seems fucking yeah. insane no, to I've, me. I've had I've had the uh I've I've had Portillos and I've had and people are gonna get mad at me for this because they're like, oh you gotta go to fucking Johnny Beefheads in Bucktown <laughs> yeah. or some bullshit. I don't fucking care. So I've I've had Portillos and uh when when Myros and I lived in Kalamazoo, Michigan, there was like a, a Chicago beef place and Kalamazoo's close enough to Chicago, so that fucking yeah, they should be you know, able to figure it out. He should be able to figure it out. And and my experience every single time was it was somehow a sandwich that was both impossibly dry and impossibly wet at the same time. And I don't know how you fucking <laughs> yeah, do that. I, I, I'm uh, going to land in the middle. I'm I'm fine with an Italian beef, but it, basically it's just a worse French dip. Like just give me yeah, a French dip. Yeah. Sure. No, I, I yeah. would I would take that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a I'm fancy, not going to find bitch and I eat my French dip. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not what, going yeah. to bat yeah, for that. Crusty roll, you need the, the Chicago, mm, The Chicago dog, I was actually surprised I liked. I was not mm-hmm. expecting that. I'm I'm more of a more of a ketchup mustard hot dog person or dressing with some yeah. other stuff. There's too much. I'm not like a pickle relish person, but no, it's it's actually pretty pretty good actually. I quite I quite no, like the I, Chicago. It's better than the Seattle dog, which I recently learned about. It has fucking cream cheese on it, which yeah, is yeah, that's that's horseshit. Insane. That's insane. But, but the thing is, is like nobody trusts those people. Like if you live in fucking Seattle, <laughs> fuck you. That's, I've lived uh, in but, Seattle for two years and I never seen such a thing in my life, but. Yeah, it's disgusting. It, it's, no, it's a thing. I, it's it exists. Well, here's the there. problem with Rest the Chicago assured, Jack, hot dog. Everything in Seattle is bullshit. Take that to the bank. Yeah, it's bullshit. It's a bullshit city. <laughs> uh, Chicago hot dog, fine, but the Chicago hot dog needs to take a lesson from uh, Coco Chanel, who taught us before you go out, look in the mirror, and take off one accessory. And the, the Chicago hot dog is a is a hot dog with too many fucking accessories. Yeah, take the tomatoes. Oh, you need. Up. You need you, oh, I need. Yeah, I need a slice <laughs> of tomato. I need a, a fucking sport pepper. I need. And you could justify, I guess, some of these things. You're just like, oh, I got my neon green relish, and then uh, fucking celery salt. Why do you need celery salt? Is someone, I'm, someone out there, fucking I'm explain to me say, why you need celery salt. I I agree on on one point. Right, hot dog is like. Should be the essence of simplicity as a food, and a Chicago dog's a lot of fucking trouble. I fully agree with mm-hmm. that. But luckily, if you live in Chicago, you can pick them up 
in a lot of places without you know someone else will do the trouble for you but yeah i don't know no the tomato gets it gets a little bit of moisture you got your heat from the pickles or from the the peppers you got like that little gnarly funk the salt yeah maybe maybe it contributes into a little a little bit of a zing it's been a while since i've had one but no i mean i think it's a surprisingly well balanced dog i'm gonna go to the bat for the chicago dog I think that one's a, an interesting medley of flavors tomatoes that are, I, I was not expecting to like. The, the, but, the, you know, t- tomatoes a hard sell for me on any hot sandwich. Generally, I'm like, what? What's this fucking raw tomato? What? What's it belong? It oh, doesn't you gotta, belong yeah, anywhere. Yeah, no, but it's like it's like a little a little blush of of moist in there. You know, it's it's like a little a little. It's almost like a little uh, a damp towelette for your mouth while you're while you're in the middle of chewing. It's it's a whole thing. But uh, I mean, at the end of the day, it's still a hot dog. So eating one's probably going to take two years off your life instantly. That's fair. But, yeah, um, that's probably true. You know, whatever. Enjoy whatever, it. Do, it. Do what you need. Well, I'm going to do two putovers today. Uh, first, I'm going to put over the uh, cuisine of the city of Detroit. I feel like if we're talking hot dogs and we're talking pizza, Detroit style pizza and the Detroit Coney dog, vastly superior. Uh, I guess they don't have an Italian beef equivalent, but whatever. They'll uh, get there second thing I'm going to put over. Aren't they well known for corned I, beef in some sections? Maybe. I think so. I don't, I don't fuck. I think so. Well, uh, the other thing I'm going to put over is I've been doing this thing where as I'm working, I, I put on like a generic documentary that I don't really give a fuck about kind of in the background and just kind of absorb it. And somehow this past week I got on a kick. It's like, documentaries about the internet and i watched two of them back to back and one was called uh feels good man and the other one was called that feeling when no girlfriend and the former is about how i i guess the the artist who originally drew pepe the frog uh it was like horrified when it got adopted by you know 4chan and the alt-right and and all that stuff and just like the steps he took to try and take back his frog drawing it's fine. And then uh, that feeling when no girlfriend is about the the weird degenerate slugs who sit on 4chan all day and uh, just like post horrible shit. And they're both kind of interesting snapshots of of a certain era of Internet culture. But they there's there's really nothing past the surface. And I, I feel like this is a complaint I could lodge at at basically any contemporary documentary because i don't know if you're not fred wiseman or a couple other people out there you're, you're just this is the kind of slop you're making but it made me think like I, I don't know if anyone has really made the definitive like internet culture documentary and then i said wait there is one and oddly enough it came out back in 2009 so if you want to know what the ultimate fucking internet culture documentary is it's called we live in public uh, it's directed by Andy Timoner. I'm, I'm probably saying that wrong, uh, but she she's also the person who directed uh, Dig, which is the the documentary about the Brian Jonestown massacre. Anyways, it's fucking awesome. It, it feels watching it now, like it, when you watched it back in like 2009, 2010, you're just like, oh wow, this is like fucking wild. But now it feels absolutely prophetic the the way that it sort of predicted uh, the direction that social media and live streaming would kind of head in. Uh, in, in this second wave of the internet. So uh, it's fantastic. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. Hunt it down, buy it, steal it, whatever you got to do. Uh, that's that's the internet movie. So watch that shit. Have you seen that shit, Jack? I, I have not seen that one. No, I thought wow. you were going to... I thought you were going to put over that Werner Herzog documentary from several years ago. 
that I forgot. Oh, the one the about name like of. texting and driving? <laughs> Not that one. The uh, oh, actually, no, you're right. It was that one. <laughs> Same. <laughs> there was, that was a thing that happened in that. I haven't seen it since it came out and was weirdly sponsored by a tech company. Very strange phase. But then again, that that's Herzog for you, uh, dude. I'm telling you, like Herzog should. He should do every like weird PSA documentary. Like I always think back to when I was a kid and I was in driver's ed and we had to watch this driver's ed movie about road rage. And it was about this guy who um, like, I don't know, he was like riding somebody's ass and pissed him off. And then they pulled over and the guy just got out of his car and shot him with a crossbow. Uh, with the crossbow, awesome. was this like based on an actual case or did the director was just feeling feisty that day? I'm not sure. I, I, I'm under the assumption that it was based on a true case, but also part of me is like, I hope it was made up. But, you know, it, it was kind of shitty, but obviously it's kind of like funny and ridiculous. And all I can think now is like, God, how much better would shit like that be if, if Herzog was just telling you about it? Herzog or, or honestly, Road Rage uh, PSAs directed by Gaspar Noe, I think would probably be better than feature films directed by Gaspar Noe. So, yeah, maybe maybe pull him in. I bet he would make a pretty compelling Road Rage PSA. Yeah, I get down with that. You get the, you could uh, bring back the protagonist of I Stand Alone again. It would be, yeah. I'd, I'd also be good that. with uh, Harmony Corinne uh, doing some PSAs. I feel on, like on he'd, he'd end on a message where at the end of it you'd be like, so is it good or bad to road rage? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it might and be the a lesson mark is, of ambiguity. kill your parents! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh but yeah, it's uh, it's it's good shit. Okay, so, so I didn't make up the corned beef thing, by the way. The Visit Detroit's called it the signature sandwich of the city, which, and I think we can all agree that corned beef is better than Italian beef. Absolutely, hundred yeah. percent. So Detroit 100%. wins again. Detroit wins again, baby. I mean, I gotta That's- say they do win the pizza side. I mean, the the Detroit pizza is fantastic. But you know what the great thing is is that there's a great Detroit pizza in Chicago. So I win. Nice. Yeah, you do win. You do win. Chicago's got it all. I'll give you that. Uh, but hey, we should probably wrap things up. So uh, if you're listening to the podcast right now, do us a big favor. There's a link in the description that'll take you to our Patreon page where you can give us money. And why on earth would you want to give us money? That's a great question. Uh, and the answer is, is because you get shit. Uh, the first thing you get is if you donate any amount of money and you live in the continental United States, I will send you a movie from my personal collection. I got a big ass box. Plus, I got a few other things. I've been, I just built some new shelves. I've been cleaning out some things. Uh, I, I've, I've added things to the pile. There's all kinds of goodies out there. So truly, there has never been a better time to donate to the Optimism Vaccine Patreon. Now, in addition to that, you get access to our exclusive Patreon feed, uh, which will give you uh, old podcasts that you can only get on Patreon. It'll give you a bunch of old written content you can only get on Patreon. And of course, new episodes on a semi-regular basis uh, that are Patreon exclusive. So very cool for you. Now, you'll want to donate at a higher level if you donate at $5 or more. Then you also get to vote in our patron polls, which will let you uh, decide on future episodes. And uh, you get your name right out on the air. How fun is that? So, Myros, who are our five and above patrons right now? Uh, We have David, Evan, Ryan, Dustin, and Paula. And God bless every single one of them. Now, if you really, really want to be a true superstar in the optimism vaccine universe, or if you're just pissed off because you really want us to cover something that we haven't covered yet, you can donate $25. And with that $25 donation, you will get to choose an entire episode yourself. It could be anything 
you want. Hentai, Myros, the episode, it's got to happen sometime soon, but only your money can make that dream come true. So remember that. Otherwise, if you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, optimismvaccine at gmail.com, uh, or you can, you know, hit us up on social media at Optimism Vaccine, where, wherever you are, probably. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, we will be back uh, next week. I'm very excited for next week. Talk about some, some slasher goodness. I'm, I'm very fucking excited for what we got coming up next. So we'll be back. We'll be back.